In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to yeah, I was waiting for that. Song. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am. What the hell is that? No idea. Any clue? I suspect it's cow. I suspect it's wrapping paper. Well, stop oh, for it. For God's sakes, we let him back on, and this is what happens. Nori says she's sorry, but she's bringing up some Christmas cheer. Yeah, well, you know what? If it's, not, if it's not liquid, I don't want it. <laughs> Apparently it is. I think there's a JD bottle over there being wrapped. It's got there Ron's name on it. Uh, okay, <laughs> anyways, welcome to Ghost Chronicles International, right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. And it's unbelievable that we have Cal today. And all the way from across the pond, the amazing Mr. Parascience, Mr. Steve Parsons. Thank you, Ron. Good evening, good afternoon. God bless. In the, in the, other, the, other, the other branch of this triad of terror, Mr. Cal Cooper. Let me, let me hear his voice again. <laughs> oh, sorry. wow, I miss it. No, 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 he's, making he's, been, he's been at the JD already. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> so, anyways, welcome, uh, welcome aboard, Mr. Cooper. Thank you, Ron. How's it been going after all this time I've been away? We really missed him, didn't we, Steve? Oh yeah, yeah. They, they, it's ne- not the same. Not the same. No. Cal. Really, no, no name calling or anything behind my back. Uh, no. Not on no. air, no. No, no. not on <laughs> Well, maybe. I mean, more than sure then. Anyway, so Cal, what have you been up to? I mean, we'll have to start with you because we have really talked to you, talked to you for quite a while. Oh, since the last time I was on the show, I think I got bombarded with um, PhD work and also lecturing because at the university I teach in two different modules of parapsychology now, which started a couple of months back. Um, so I've been teaching third-year psychology students, parapsychology, which is a full year's course, and master students because we have a MSc in transpersonal psychology and consciousness studies, so they have an intensive six-week course of parapsychology if they pick it. And uh, I went and gave a guest talk to the Scottish Society of Psychical Research a couple of weeks ago. And then just a few days ago, I gave a rather unusual um, talk to ASAP, 
because they were doing a UFO conference. And I've never really been into UFOs or alien abductions. It's not really my sort of thing, though I've obviously read a fair bit about it. It's just because of the telephone call stuff. There was a bit of an overlap because some really? people... Some people at some times have reported saying that they've been contacted by aliens over the telephone. And these are usually UFO hunters. And they get strange, harassing calls saying, don't discuss your experiences with anyone or the fact that you've seen a UFO. And some people also develop men in black syndrome as well. They believe that after they've seen a UFO, men in black suits are following them everywhere. Um, but mainly, the majority of people that have seen UFOs can also relate to experiencing strange telephone calls as well. So the whole talk was about why do people interpret one set of calls to be from the dead, and why do the other interpret it to be from aliens? Is it something about the call characteristics? Because when it's from the dead, people say it sounds exactly like the dead. Those where it appears to be from aliens, they say it's very electronic or metallic, the voices that they hear. They're not normal sounding voices. They don't sound like humans. And uh, it was basically turned into a long article that I co-wrote with uh, one of the previous book reviewers of the Canadian Ufologist. And in 1996, he wrote a book review of Phone Calls from the Dead by Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayliss. And it was about a five-page review. It was excellent because he went in-depth saying, look, UFO hunters and so forth should really pay attention to the literature of early psychical research through to modern day because there are a lot of overlaps where people interpret um, UFO phenomena to be directly to aliens when, in fact, you look at it and you break it down and it seems to be very much psychic phenomena as well at the same time. You could argue it being both. Um, so we just talked about this overlap, this link between ufology and psychical research, and we used the phone calls as an example. So uh, that's why I've been away for quite a while. I've been doing different projects. So you well, weren't I selling mean, war bonds then? Well, that's a well I was doing that now and then. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, I was running about in a dress, selling war bombs. Um, I think you knew something Oh, that's about right, it. you were in Scotland, that's right. I, no, I yeah, 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 running about in a dress. Um, selling war bombs, and I've been working for the government, but I, I don't like to talk about it. I don't think I should either. Because <laughs> you'll have little black men calling you on the phone, is that what you're saying? I, I don't want to say, just in case it happens. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, actually, you, you, it's, it's, uh, it's really amusing that you bring up this thing about UFOs, because uh, we just had a, a major sighting here, in uh, Denver, I don't know if you knew that. No, no, I haven't heard about that one. Okay, well, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go over to the, uh, uh, what page do we have? Uh, the Ghost Chronicles International page, and I will post the link to that video uh, so you can actually see. And it looks an awful lot like Steve, but no, what can I say? It's, it is what it is, you know what I'm saying? Are you saying I'm small and green? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I really haven't seen you up close. Um, you know, you could use, you, you could I think use a new people have. You 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 uh, could use a new photo for your uh, uh, page, by the way, because well, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I think I think on those I think the header page photos. I think you and I both come out small and orange. Yeah, I Perhaps think that one. Of, I, yeah, um, well, we're alien, stuck with that alien form. We're stuck with that anyways. I think that uh, I have some, some person in black did that or something, whatever. But anyways, uh, in your research, uh, Mr. Parsons, since we're, we're touching a little bit on uh, UFOs right now, have you uh, seen any uh, overlap between the two? 
Um, I did. I did note the overlap between uh, certain aspects of ufology and contactee reports, where they claim. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Cal and I had a discussion about this before the book was published, if I remember. Yeah. Um, there Just were a number time, of contactee. <laughs> <clears throat> there were a number of contactee reports where people were interpreting what sounded. Um, in all in all respects, uh, identical to a telephone call from the dead, but their interpretation was obviously in light of their own area of interest, um, and they and they were therefore interpreting them as a UFO or an alien contact using the telephone. But beyond that, I've got almost. I mean, I live in a, one of the UK's UFO hotspots, and uh, back in the I think it was the seventies. Uh, the area where I am was um, key in one of the big landmark cases called the Broadhaven, um, the Broadhaven School case, or the Dovid Enigma, or the Welsh Triangle. It had a number of names. There were different books mm-hmm. published about it. But to be honest, it's not really an area that I've had any interest in since since school days. Um, when I was at school, I, I did have more of an interest in ufology and UFOs, but I think that spun really from from an interest in aviation and and, and sort of known aeronautical things, flying things. Um, and I always used to get dragged along on the Skywatches because I was a, the only kid in the school that could identify a Boeing 707 uh, by its pattern of navigation lights at night, which is a bit sad, I suppose. But uh, You know, um, it comes in handy, you know. Uh, it, it came in handy once or twice. Um, yeah. but, it's, I good mean, up, it's good to pick up checks, you know what I mean? <laughs> Not really. Um, there's been there's been a number of publications that link parapsychology uh, to UFOs. Uh, probably Manfred Manfred Kassir's book Parapsychology in the UFO is mm. is one that 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 does look at uh, the crossovers between the two areas. Um, but again, it's 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 not an area that I have any great expertise in. So um, I leave that to the the people that hug trees and believe in little green men and the Elvis. Well, you know that that's not necessarily true. I, I mean, I had um, before I, you guys were my co-hosts. I had this gentleman name of uh, Richard Felix on, and he was my co-host at one time. And we had a gentleman on the, by the name of uh, Nick Pope. And I, uh-huh. I believe you know him, right? And and yeah. and he was, you know, he was pretty amazing. He, and the interesting part about it, he did talk about the overlap. He, he he talked about ghosts in the relationship to UFOs, and I, I found that interesting. In fact, we had to have him back on again because I, I there's some uh, new things that happened to him since uh, we we had him on before. But yeah, there, there does appear to be uh, an overlap. And I mean, if you, when, you, when you get down to it, we don't know what a ghost is unless you read Richard Felix's books. Um, what is a ghost? <laughs> but other than that, if you don't have that book, then you know it's all conjecture. Some people believe that it's really time travelers, you know, and, and this would fit into the UFO. Uh, uh, overlap as well. I, I did read that book, Ron, and all it's told me is who you are and who Steve is. And um, apart from that, I still don't know what a ghost is. Apparently, I read <laughs> something for that book. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I I read know that Nick. Book. <laughs> I know Nick. Uh, we sh- shared uh, an evening in London um, at a four-way talk uh, entitled "Cafe Scientific" with Professor Chris French and. Ever such a nice lady from Bristol University, whose name escapes me now. Um, and my abiding memory of Nick, um, apart from being a thoroughly nice bloke and very, very interesting as a speaker, is the amount he can drink. <laughs> <laughs> Come
completely drunk me under the table. But, I mean, there is another crossover there between, I guess, aliens and um, uh, psychical research. And, and that's most notably, perhaps, on the only television program um, where the Ghost Hunters medium... Uh, got in touch with the spirit of a deceased or trapped alien. And that really? was Derek Akora. That was Derek Akora on mm. Most Haunted. Uh, he actually um Were you got on in that touch. Show? Uh, not that particular episode, thank God, but it was in the audience. Um and Derek Derek picked up on the um I'm sure it was the, the, the entrapped deceased spirit of uh, an alien life form that was locked in a brush cupboard um, really? on the lo- at the location. And in one of those great moments of television, as, as Derek was saying it, the camera panned down to reveal uh, one of these Henry Hoover vacuum cleaners in the corner. Um, and the audience just fell about laughing, as you can imagine. So there is, you know, <laughs> Just like there that. are links between parapsychology and alien life forms and psychical research. Mm. I always thought that the, uh, Manfred Cassier's book was pretty good. I was speaking to David Ellis about that because he was the one who helped get it published. And he said he, uh, Manfred had an unusual background because he was an Egyptologist, and yet he never linked parapsychology with Egyptology, and he ended up producing books like Parapsychology and the UFO, which is odd. Just that it was an odd turn of events. It's not the biggest book in the world, let's be honest. I think no, it's not. 30 pages in it. But no, hey, no, oh, my God. <laughs> that's not a book, it's, it's a pamphlet. Yeah, well, it, it would, I mean, you know, I think Cal's written bigger chapters. And, um, <laughs> and, it's a and neat pamphlet. It is a neat little pamphlet, um, and mm. my signed personal copy um, looks, looks very well on the bookshelf, and I must get mm. round to reading it one day. <laughs> you know what's interesting though is is if you talk to you know there there are all different people that believe in so many things and this is going back to what ghosts are again i mean you, you know it, it's really almost a religious belief i mean you have people that believe in angels and and these higher beings you know like quantron or whatever the heck he is and and these other uh beings from mother um constellations that somehow are consciously in touch with us and stuff. So the, there are people that, that have that belief in, uh, you know, aliens of one sort or another. Yeah, and there's also people that believe in fairies, and there mm, are people that's true. who believe in tree spirits, and there are people who believe well, in yes. guardian angels, and there are even people, you know, who believe that um, Neil Armstrong never set foot on the moon. This is true. That's all their realities, and, and that's what they believe, and that's why it's difficult, I mean, to even argue with people who are, I mean, it's really, like I said, they're almost their religious beliefs, where this is what they are, and that's all there is to it. You know, and I, and I brought this up before many times about orbs, if you show an orb to a person, one person believes it's an energy of a spirit, you know, one believes it's a, the Blessed Virgin, another person believes it's an angel, another person believes it's a fairy, uh, it's an ET, you know, it's all what they believe in. Their reality forms whatever that uh, thing is. Well, to an extent, to an extent, we have to, uh, you know, we factor that into to everything we do, don't we? But there, there does, there is a, a sort of frustration within psychical research, and I suppose within ufology as well, um, that that people who are 
looking for explanations are constantly hitting this this rubber wall uh, surrounding yeah. these these beliefs um and i suppose it you know it, yeah they are entitled to the beliefs I, I mean there is even still a flat earth society um well i think its members are diminishing or have fallen off the edge um, <laughs> but but you know it is frustrating because people do expend quite a you know a deal of effort doing research and studying phenomena and coming forward with with you know well 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 uh, researched hypotheses um, only to be met with the oh well you don't know what you're talking about because I believe um, yeah and it, it it can be very very frustrating that frustration was seen at the the UFO conference at the end I end up on the um, discussion panel I felt like I really shouldn't be there because I know Bob all about UFOs against the people there that have been reading about it but um, they were talking about you know where does this go from here where do we see ufology in 10 years and they were complaining that you know we need some more data or some more evidence here and I said you're going to gain as much data and evidence as psychical research is doing more so if you actually look at what research methods they're using and applying from social sciences or from the other sciences because at the end of the day you've got someone who's had a UFO sighting the UFO's flown away after that so the person you need is the person who saw the UFO and their accounts of it and compare it to other people that are in that same location and saw these particular um, flying objects I mean there were some people at the conference that said that that was an absolutely useless method and that eyewitness testimony is completely useless and it's not scientific and I said well if that's your opinion then you're the ufologist do what you want but that's all I can suggest from what psycho research does with spontaneous cases and say seeing a ghost if you can actually develop some sort of device that you can fire at a UFO and measure it in some way fair enough it was just bizarre hearing some of the the comments we seemed like they were the there was you know they were going backwards rather than forwards with research but you know you've got to uh, use what yeah, like, you can to progress like like with psychical research you know, they're actually there is good science being done and there is there is substantial evidence being gathered the, the problem oh, yeah. is, is is people's perception or, or what they take from that evidence because if it doesn't comply with their own beliefs they just bury head in the sand and then, yeah. you know, pour scorn on, on, on the research, however, however good it may be, or, you know, or however bad it may be in some cases. I mean, as you said, um, there are people who genuinely don't think that, uh, you know, it is a firm and, uh, fervent belief that uh, aliens have never visited this earth and that there are no objects in the sky of an alien origin and everybody that reports it are, are clearly mad. Um, now, that might be the case, but they're not really open to all of the evidence because their, their approach to it is such that they're not, you know, you will never change their opinion because you will never actually get them to sit down and view the evidence in an open, mm. fair and objective manner. Like with orbs? Well, like with orbs. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to avoid orbs, but as you said, I, I, like I orbs, felt the need... We, you know, there is, there is, uh, there are... As, as I said last week, um, the experiments that have been done using uh, stereo photography do demonstrate quite Yeah, we, we beat this thing to a death on, on yeah. us, though. I really think we have. And... But it, it is the same example, though, that, you know, you can show people research into that and you can't right. affect their beliefs. So. All right. Well, we could flog infrasound to death. <laughs> mm. It's true, too. 
Uh, we actually have a question from the chat room, and this is for Cal, believe it or not, and I guess they miss him. This is from Linda, and she says, does Cal believe in UFOs? I, I was asked that. We each got individual questions and then group questions at the conference, and I said, I, I don't doubt that people have seen them, and probably once or twice I might have seen them, but then again, I never bothered when I saw it to actually check if something was logged as flying in that area at that time with you know, the local air control or whatever. So, um, but there have been, as Steve says, some fascinating accounts that have been documented and some of the accounts that were presented at the conference by some really good researchers. I mean, there's, there's a various, it ranged from amateurs to really good researchers at the conference. But um, there's some ones that were just fascinating accounts and fascinating footage that went along with it, where it had been checked and nothing was registered flying in that area at that time, and unusual crafts that were maybe flying in and out of other crafts. Um, so, you know, considering the vastness of space, I've always believed that there's possibly planets and other solar systems way out there that have some sort of sustained life on it that's way advanced than we are, and some planets that are way less advanced than we are. And we're just somewhere lost in the middle of space. So there must be something out there. Maybe at certain periods it has visited. But, you know, that's it there. I can't really do much beyond it, and I don't think I will. I have a fundamental... I've got a fundamental uh, problem with UFOs. Um, okay. Mm. And, and, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's always one of those qu of, uh, thoughts that struck me when reading some accounts, uh, particularly, you know, relatively modern uh, nighttime sightings. Because if these aliens are so intent on being uh, stealthy and remaining sort of off the radar, why did they put so yeah. many lights on the craft? See in the dark. Well, you know, they, they have motion too, you know. <laughs> well, they, ju they just want a bit of bling, you know. Yeah, but the, it, it always struck me as one of those weird, you know, they're flying around. They don't want anybody to know, apparently, as they tell the contactees, um, that they're, you know, uh, supposed to be here covertly. And then they light up the bloody thing. It's like Christmas trees. Because they pimped their ride. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they've done. Anyway, I think we uh, can let UFOs go if it's okay with you guys. Phew. Yeah. Yeah. Fine Anyways, uh, that's, you know, that's, well, that's another topic. We'll get Nick on and we'll talk about UFOs. And I, I think he, uh, I think he probably is the most knowledgeable that I know of anyways. And from different aspect of not just well, whatever. Let's not get into it. Anyways, uh, what we do want to talk about, and, and this is interesting because um, when Cal was over here uh, last summer, uh, he talked about some old machines that uh, you guys actually had a chance to work with. And I thought for some reason it was from the Ghost Hunters Club, but it was really from the SPR. Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, it's really weird device. It had... Um a needle at the bottom, and apparently if you overlapped fabric and pushed it through, the needle would draw itself in and out of the fabric and place thread in between, and it sort of stitch at a very fast rate clothes together. Uh, and I've never seen anything like that. It's bizarre. Wait a minute. Absolutely. That's a sewing machine. Oh, was it? Ah, mystery solved, Steve. Do I you think know, all of, those, all of those hours we spent... 
trying to figure that one out. Actually, um, if people go onto the Ghost Chronicles <laughs> Facebook page, you can see a picture of Cal's sewing machine. Uh, yes. It's called the Scammel device. Um, Scammel, do we know it's why it's called the Scammel device? The, sc- the reason for the name is it was uh, developed, invented, and created by a gentleman by the name of Ernest, Ernest. Scammel. Ernest Scammel. Um, who apparently or seems to have perfected the device during World War II because the device appeared completed uh, just at the end of World War II, around 1945. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. interestingly, his inspiration for the machine itself um, and also some assistance psychically uh, with its construction and or design um, came from Thomas Edison. Yeah. Yes. Uh, around around the 1940s, there were several um, overlaps. Wait, wait, wasn't Edison in the U.S. at that time? He was dead at that time. We, 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 well, Long parts dead. of him were in the U.S. All right, now I'm <laughs> Oh, no, right, right, in the war, too. You're right. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah, Edison passed away in 1931, and in the 1940s, there were at least two documented... Uh, no, three documented uh, seances with, um, if we count the Ernest Scammell one, three documented seances where um, Thomas Edison got in contact. One was held in New York, and Jay Gilbert Wright was there, uh, the inventor of Putty, and he had an assistant there, Harry Gardner. They got communication from Thomas Edison through the medium Mary Olson there, and she relayed information about the various components needed to build this machine. They went away and built it. And in some obscure psychical research journals at the time that aren't available now, very difficult to come by, they did publish a report of them using this machine and apparently it was successful. And then that just faded out into history and it's very hard to find out what happened to their device or how um, they continued in psychical research, if they did at all. Another one was John Logie Baird, um, the inventor of Baird Televisions, he was working quite closely with one of the early SPR members, Sir Oliver Lodge, and he attended a seance in the 1940s, got in contact with Thomas Edison, who was uh, communicating information in the seance via the Morse code system, wrapping through the table, again about creating a device to contact dead. And then the one that we have, the Scammell device, uh, Scammell attended a seance, supposedly. He was a member of a local spiritualist church in London, and he was also an electrician. And um, he got this information about the components needed, and supposedly that's the device that Steve and I were working on, the one that he produced via Edison's instructions. Okay, so, so, so that was the SPR. No, no, that's the other thing I didn't wasn't aware of either, that... Uh, it's the 150th anniversary of the Ghost Hunt Club, but SPR has been how long, Steve? Um, well, first of all, I've got to correct your your uh, your calling them the Ghost Hunt Club or the London <laughs> formed in 1862. Apparently, is the Ghost Club, and formed in 1882 is the Society for Psychical Research. Although the dates for the formation of the Ghost Club. Um, are a little bit lost in the mist of time, and I know, I hope uh, that next week we'll be able to give um, the Ghost Club a full hour. Uh, right, we, that, about that's their, our their birthday celebrations. Yeah. Right, because as far as we know, they are the oldest Ghost Club in the world, right? They are the the, the longest continuously operating Ghost right. Club in the world. Um, although. 
the SPR are not very far behind them. Um, no. At 130 years this year. That's amazing. That's amazing. You were there. And you were there at the beginning, I believe. <laughs> I, I, I apparently was there at the beginning, and I've already been invited to talk at the 200th anniversary conference. That's amazing. That's, Via that's the scammer device. Yeah, um, no doubt. Anyways, I, I hear the music, which means we have to take a break right now. And, and you are listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International right here on Tojanet Pararex, Ghost Channel and Beyond with uh, Mr. Parascience, Steve Parsons, the rock parapsychologist, Mr. Cal Cooper, and New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Cohen. We'll be right back. Welcome to Tojanet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul-searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. And I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Dan and Ron. See you then. Gentlemen, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with the rack, 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 wow, rock parapsychologist himself. I haven't said that in so long I forgot how to say it. Mr. Cal Cooper and, of course, Mr. Parascience, the amazing Steve Parsons, and the humble Mr. Van Helsing. So here we are. So, I mean, 
we have this this machine, the what was it, the Hemel machine or Dremel machine? Or, it was just yeah, we, we're gonna have to buy we're gonna have to buy Ron a pen for Christmas, the Scammel yeah. device. Scammel, yeah, I was so like. close. It had a, an L in it somewhere and an M, I think, or something. But anyways, where where has this thing been for you know a hundred years or whatever the heck has been forty fifty uh-huh. years? I held a few discussions with Steve when I was writing the book, which is what brought the UFO stuff. And then afterwards, I had mentioned some of the devices in Chapter 3, which go throughout the history of people creating different things, like F.R. Melton and David Wilson. And I was at the SPR office in London just looking up some different texts that I needed and journal articles and so forth. And every time I've been in there, I had noticed some of the unusual boxes they got just stacked on the top of shelves, gathering dust and cobwebs and God knows what else. And Peter Johnson, the secretary, came in. I was just chatting to him about the book. And he said, oh, this might be of interest to you. Not that he thought to ever mention it while I was writing the book, which would have been interesting, but he went over to one of the shelves. He just moved a load of paperwork. And underneath all this paperwork was this big old black box with a, um, a handle on it to carry it and a big lid speaker on one side, put it on the table, open it up, and inside you've got all this old um, electronics inside and the vacuum tubes and some paperwork that just gave a very brief idea of what people had thought it was and more so a covering letter saying that it was from a Mrs. Scammell. Um, she'd had it in her house for some time. It had been passed down through the family and her son, Mark Scammell, had tried contacting various people like Tom and Lisa Butler um, to try and find out what this machine was. Uh, Tom and Lisa Butler do a lot of work on EVPs over in the States, so they thought they might be able to shed light on it, but they hadn't heard of the device. They didn't know what it was. So I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So I rang Steve, and Steve said, you know, get it out of there as soon as you can, if you can. And I just said to Peter, is it okay if I borrow it? And they just said there and then, yeah, it's fine, as long as you bring it back at some point. So I just walked straight out of the office with it. Admittedly, it was heavy. I had to walk through London and go on several trains with it. So by the end of it, my shoulders did ache carrying it in a sports bag. Oh, that's a shame. I had nothing else. He's a, to he's a big, he's a big, strong lad. I, I don't, don't give him too much sympathy. I had yeah. to do all the work once he got it here. All he had to do was carry it. I, I did laugh when you electrocuted yourself a few times. That was good. Yeah, but fortunately, <laughs> I, I managed to electrocute myself um, in the privacy and the loneliness of my own kitchen, uh, whilst Cal was still safely in, in bed. Um, when well, Cal delivered it. <laughs> well, the the idea was that we were going to try and back engineer it um, because right. I, I do have some residual knowledge of uh, electronics and instrumentation from mm-hmm. from former from former jobs, um, and the components looked uh, from the the sketchy sort of description and photographs that Cal had already pre-sent. Uh, it did look to be fairly basic valve technology, and as such. Um, it should be relatively. It should have been relatively straightforward to uh, figure out at least what it was doing. Maybe not, mm-hmm. not its uh, psychical abilities, but certainly its mechan- electromechanical abilities. And that actually proved to be the case. And um, it was, you know, fortunately, um, with a little bit of, of uh, tinkering. It was it, it was brought back to life. Um, yeah, I know. I, we, you can actually see the photographs of this on the uh, Ghost Chronicles International page, and I, I do see a light on it, so I know there is power there. Yeah, uh, power, uh, sound. Essentially, what it what it was was um, 
a, ra- a radio receiver, so not in some ways not unlike the Frank's box. Um, this was a, a not a true radio receiver because there was no antenna, so it was it was generating a radio frequency um, which wasn't being picked up from an external uh, transmitter, unless one was very very powerful or very ne- or, or very closely located. Uh, it was then mixing that uh, radio frequency. Um, with an internally generated tone from a, a rudimentary tone generator, and these were these were both variable by by different dials, um, and then the output was was through a, a, a loudspeaker and a filter, um, and it just made a lot of noise, um, and that's all that's all we could ever get it to do was to make various squeaks and howls and. Uh, static-like hums, um, so we could we could certainly get it functioning. The problem was then was trying to decide how it was used. And one of the things that that we we looked at was um, this early idea of perhaps um, the the designer of it was influenced by the spiritualist idea of higher frequencies that these beings that they were contacting these the spirits of the deceased and the, those that had passed before, passed on had had gone to a higher plane um and so that was one of the the ideas I, that we I, explored in trying to determine you know the method behind it i actually believe i know how this works because um you said there there was no no antenna right that's right. Right. So I think this is meant to be work to work with a medium, where the medium would become the, the antenna, and the messages would go through the medium and into the scramble box and then out the speaker. That that possibility did occur to us because there is a version of the Frank's box called the Frank's box medium uh, that has handles on it. Uh, for mm. the medium to actually hold and become the antenna, and there was there was a there was some suggestion that there was a, an addition a part missing. Um, there was a like a dumb terminal on top of the device that that mm. may have had an additional component, and it may have been that perhaps via a wire or a lead that would then be connected to somebody, and that that was something that we did consider, um, and. You know, by putting your finger on that uh, terminal, um, it, we did notice that it changed the tone. And rather like, uh, I don't know if you've ever done it at home with an FM or an AM radio, if you grab hold of the antenna, you can sometimes tune in stations that, that, that were previously inaudible because your body being made, uh, you know, 95% salty water makes a, an right. excellent antenna. Um, so that possibility did occur to us too, but... I was looking at it from from purely the electromechanical and the engineering, seeing you know how is it functioning, and then trying to reverse that that engineering to, right. to try and get some sort of grasp on well what was the thinking behind it being built, what was the the modus operandi of the box, and Cal was looking at it from from the point of view of um, spiritualism and the the beliefs of the of the people involved, or the people you know who were who were interested in spiritualism and contacting the dead, um, and we 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 sort of put we we well I don't know did we Cal did we well, do you think we managed to get a grasp on it? 
As you can tell from that, Steve did the hard work and the actual technical stuff. I just yeah, played I got in the library. Yeah, that that was fun. I enjoyed watching that, and then I just got to play in the library for a little bit. <laughs> um, the the main hard job was driving it to Pembrokeshire and back. So that the device has travelled a lot, but I think it's all in a good cause because I, I think we did actually reach some pretty good conclusions, and we were very fair in. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the things that we did notice, um, and I think this, this was during the, the, the weekend that we spent uh, with the device working, was that once it was running, um, once she'd sort of fiddled with the controls, I became, um, it quite, it became quite apparent that there was a sound that was somewhat akin to whispering. Uh, I could hear what sounded like whispering in my ear. Was that with the the device itself, though, or was that when you actually made a mock-up of the circuitry? No, that was with the device itself, because we did did it uh, later on when Norrie was there, too. Um, Yeah, I remember... Yeah, okay, go on. It did seem to play tricks with your ears. I think, you know, this constant noise, this high-pitched noise mixed with this staticky growl, um, did seem to play tricks with your ears. And I said uh, when, when Cal arrived that um, you know, after a few minutes, it started to almost sound like whispering taking place. You know, the, there was nothing coherent or, or understandable. Did you, did you record it at all as far as the, this particular thing that you were experiencing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We've, we've got sound recordings of the device. Um, but it doesn't really come across quite as clearly on the on the audio recordings as it did on the the 1940s. Ah, the human the human element again, and the yeah. human element again. And this led us to I think one of the ideas that we we did look at was that it, it, in some ways it does work like one of the modern Frank's boxes, and that it just makes a lot of noise, and the person ends up interpreting the noise however they wish. So you end yeah. up, uh, you know, audio, audio pareidolia um, taking place. Yeah. It, it was only going to change after you'd listen to a certain tone for a while and then you just change the frequencies a little bit and then it starts again and this tinnitus effect starts to take place. So from what we got, from what Steve had figured from the circuitry and from looking at some of the spiritualist ideas, all we could really do was present a fair argument as to the most rational things that could have been going on and how Scammell would have been using it. So you've got to picture um, Scammell having probably several friends from whatever spiritualist church he was associated with or other spiritualists in London. And then once he created this device, he may have invited them over to his house to conduct a seance with this um, box active. And it had the old light bulb fittings to it as well to actually get it working. So the cable was fixed into the old bayonet socket. And um, you'd be sat listening to this noise, possibly in low lighting, um, with the doors and windows shut. And it's just throwing the sound waves from wall to wall. And if you're all sat in the dark with the suggestion that you're contacting the dead, this whispering would take, or certainly more of an effect, than it was doing in Steve's kitchen when we were just trying to figure out what it was doing. But even so, it was presenting to us some sort of rational ideas for what was going on. And um, so in the article that we wrote together for the next Paranormal Review that's coming out, we presented all these likely ideas for what was going on and all these different spiritualist ideas. At the end of the day, though, we don't actually have Scammell's notes um, or any record of why he built it exactly and what he intended to use it for, because there's no existing documentation apart from the box itself. It's the only thing that seems to exist. Well, I, I see how we, we can have to solve this problem, and that, of course, would be to get a good medium like uh, Derek or Cora to come in and uh, be able to, and then we could transpose the notes from him directly. 
But do you know uh, we, didn't, we didn't overlook that possibility either, Ron. In fact, the end of the the last paragraph of the article actually says that um, the device was built with psychic. Uh, with the psychic assistance of Thomas L. Edison, mm. and without the psychic assistance of Ernest Scammell, I doubt we will ever. We doubt we will ever oh, really good, understand good. Uh, yeah, yeah, what he, the device was doing. I, I actually have a, a question on that. I mean, do you have the, the photograph? Uh, I mean, first of all, when is this article come, coming out, and will people be able to uh, read it or, or get a copy of it? It's, over, it's overdue, isn't it? It was due. Uh, it's um, October edition. Yeah, so October it should edition. Be, it should be out by now, but there's been a bit of a backlog with the SPR publications yeah. this year. So, um, okay, so I'm guessing when it does come out, will you, you let us know? Well, I, I think we can. I think we can do better as soon as it comes out. What we'll do is we'll we'll scan it and we'll get it up, uh, put it up, up online somewhere so people who don't uh, access the paranormal review. Okay. Um, Very can have a read of it. But on the I, Ghost Chronicles website, there is actually uh, a photograph of the device mm. uh, yeah. and also a, 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 peer, well, a, black, a black and white video made to look like, uh, give you an idea of what perhaps the device was functioning like in the 1940s. Well, you don't uh, have the white squiggly lines of the ripped Yeah, they did. And, but the, sa- the sound isn't affected, so you do get to hear the sort of general sound that the, okay. that the machine makes. What Cal wasn't saying was that the, um, uh, the, the, the volume of the device, you had no control over, and it was incredibly loud. This is kind of where I, I'm leaning to. And, and uh, Steve, do you have a picture of the device up in front of you? Um, but I can okay, get you very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, okay. I know exactly where they are. Though. Okay. Uh, what, well, what, what was the question? Okay, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the device, uh, the picture you posted, all right? Yeah. And, and I notice uh, the front has three knobs in a row, and then we have a little gauge up on the right-hand side, and then a little light bulb. Could you uh-huh. kind of uh, explain to, you know, our listeners, basically, uh, what, the, each of these little controls, uh, as far as you could tell, uh, accomplished if you did anything to them. Okay, well, I say looking at looking at the photograph that's online, um, yeah. what you can see is the to, you can see some wires disappearing to the left. They simply went to the loudspeaker, which was on the front of the cabinet. So you open that, that swung open, and revealed the the inner workings. Um, which were the these there's four valves that you can see, um, and then you have the brown baker like uh, rotary knob with the little finger depressed. Right. What what is that? Uh, that was for setting the tuning of the uh, RF stage. So that was you you would select the radio frequency tuner by you by turning that that control. Okay. That was linked by a string to the upper right uh, contr- uh, dial that's indicated as selector. Uh, okay, so that one you're picking the frequency out. Yeah, um, and that was that the selector dial uh, selector, which was uh, the little pointer turned uh, co- corresponding to the turning of the brown knob at the bottom left, uh, was indicated in, in what we would call hertz kilohertz, but. Back in the 40s, it was called MCS or megacycles. Uh, but the numbers seem to be... Uh, what is that They don't seem to bear any relation, unless it was a dual-scale device, and we never quite figured that one out. Um, the next 
the centre of the three on the bottom row was actually the the uh, controller for the internally generated frequency. Um, and you turn that from zero for, on a, a moving scale from zero to 100. The final control on the bottom, pitch control, was the control that was used to blend the two together. Um, and so by, ter- by, by moving that um, over a, uh, a path of 180 degrees, you could change the, the tone of the, the sound being produced by the loudspeaker from a very low growl at the left-hand side to a very high-pitched and very, very uncomfortable squeal. Okay, um, so now I, I have a feeling of it, Steve. So, and, and, but the thing is, and I think you brought this up, is that um, you have no idea what each of these settings should be really set at or, or should they change during the operation of it. Absolutely none at all. But interestingly, just above the light is also the uh, external connector um, that at first we assumed was just holding the bulb cover in. But Mm. later on, um, and this is where I got one of the electric shocks from, later on discovered that it was live and connected to the main circuits as well. I loved it how you did that because you were just sat in the chair chatting about it with your hand just resting on the box and you casually leaned back in the chair to put your arm over the radiator <laughs> and it just completed the circuit, really. So you That's just right. went, ah! After going, oh, this knob here just holds the light. Ow, yeah! At about 5,000 volts. Because right in the centre at the top is a big white capacitor which, yeah, delivered, about, which delivered about 5,000 volts. Um <laughs> Fortunately, um, it was a very short duration shock, so... Um, it made Steve's hair stand on end there, so that was a sight to see. I would imagine. So, as, as, you say, as you rightly say, Ron, all we could do was make it work, and then, you know, even though it's got limited controls, we still, to this day, don't truly understand how it should be set up. We could, all we could do was try it at lots of different settings and try and right. figure out, um, you know... And, and use the, 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 you know, the psychology of the time. And, the, you know, we went through many, many books on, uh, uh, relating to spiritualism and uh, the seances of the 30s and 40s, uh, looking at the mindset of the people. What, mm-hmm. you know, what techniques were they using? What was their thinking? Um, and what was quite clear is, uh, the, you know, there the was this belief, this idea that spirits were were higher frequency beings or higher frequency energy. And there was also this link um, between that and what you obviously got here is... um, We we worked out the radio circuits were active in the VHF and UHF bands, so they they were clearly tuned to high frequencies rather than, you know, the much more usable at that time... um, medium wave and long wave frequencies which would have been you know used by by radio broadcasters so whoever built it was had uh, pre-selected a range of radio frequencies that we commonly use today but back in the 1940s um you know there was nothing there uh, there was a few military broadcasts one or two radio amateurs experimenting but there was no uh, you know the, the the VHF and UHF bands were essentially devoid of life, um, and so my guess is, or our guess is, that, that you know they assumed that perhaps, um, and I'm sort of reminded of the ghost of 27 uh, megacycles here, 
that you know there was some thinking that, that perhaps these beings could communicate or 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 operate at these VHF and UHF uh, radio frequencies. And then the pitch controller, the internally generated frequency, would then drop that, uh, you know, extremely high UHF uh, energy into an audible frequency that the human ear could then uh, pick up and and, uh, decipher. So, I mean, Cal, you looked at it more as uh, the parapsychology. You looked at the what what people were thinking back in those days versus. And Steve, I guess you primarily uh, worked on the uh, engineering of the devices. Is, is that what I'm getting from you too? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> in total time, how long did you have to work on this this unique device? I think uh, altogether, with with collecting the device, taking it to Steve, and then having a, a think about it, I think we had a, a bit of a thinking period before we started to write anything, which involved phone calls every day or so, just every time we came up with a new idea, just to make some notes. And I think within about a month, we produced the article. So, I think we we actually had it working. We we both had it. Uh, we both had sort of two days, two and a half days together with the de- with the working device. Yeah, and I, I think that was a great help because once we once we actually had the device in front of us and working, we were able to explore some of the ideas that we that we'd considered earlier. And then, of course, afterwards, there was a great deal of, of, of further work being done to to look more in depth at these ideas. Um, you know, um, look, Cal approached it from from the you know the the the. Uh, I, the viewpoint of parapsychology, and I was I was also uh, busy delving through lots of books from um, you know on spiritualism, just trying to get our heads into uh, the mind of the, of the the you know the people who were around when it was created. Mm. We included you know, mecha- people like. Oh, go on, go on. I was going to say the mechanics of it was relatively straightforward and simple. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a 1940s radio, essentially. Yeah, we, we included the thoughts of people like um, Robert Hare, and um, he outlined him. It wasn't his most popular book. I've forgotten the title, the one on exper- experimentations and mediumship or something like that. Oh, you remember the title of that one, Steve? Robert Hare? Yeah. I've forgotten the title of his so have I. name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was another book called Psychic Studies that was um, it was basically an anthology. It got loads of different psychical researchers' views and opinions on life after death. And he did a, a short chapter that was a few pages long. And it's got a brilliant picture of um, um, a sort of a, an automatic Ouija board that he designed where someone sits at it, but it's, it's void of people touching it. It's basically a, a machine that's doing the Ouija board for you. Oh, cool. And and just your presence is creating the messages. So we looked into his theories of life after death, and he was certainly one who mentioned these different spheres, and it varies from people believing that above the Earth there are three different layers that are different lengths apart, and the most common one was that there are seven different spheres above the Earth being different distances apart, some being several hundred miles apart, and the older you are and the longer you've been in spirit, then the further up you are, but the more knowledgeable you become. And then when you start to approach people um, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in his book, The Vital Message, there's odd mentions of him saying that once we die, we become part of this finer nature, 
and finer tuned into nature and also we enter the higher frequencies of life and so forth so there's this suggestion constantly from the spiritualist that you know something's entering the earth's atmosphere and therefore it might be interconnected with radio waves so this is the the only thinking we had to go on without Ernest Scammell's notes all we could do was just basically aim towards an educated guess from what literature was available I think before the pizza bell goes, it's also worth mentioning that, that during our trawl through the, the literature, the, uh, the research literature, we, we uncovered uh, many other devices that, that were built uh, at different mm. times. Um, we haven't uncovered any of the devices themselves uh, as yet. But I, I find it simply well, amazing. That was the pizza bell, which reminds us that the pizza's here and it's time to wrap that up. Uh, but I find this totally fascinating. I, I mean, I would just go over to the UK just so I could personally see this thing because I, I find it amazing. And if I definitely w- would love to see more research. Uh, it's definitely getting mediums involved. I mean, because that was the mindset of the inventor, I believe. Uh, so it, it, it definitely needs more research anyways. Well, we, we, we definitely got plans to try and dig up some more of these devices. The hunt is still on. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, fingers crossed, we will uh, unearth another one buried in some dusty archive somewhere. Um, we've, got, we've got leads on a couple. There you go. So anyways, we just got to wrap it up. Uh, Steve, do you have any uh, events coming up you want to uh, pimp while you're here? Uh, no, I'll, I'll pimp what I was doing last week, next week, when we talk about the Ghost Club, because I was there at their 150th birthday party last weekend. So uh, we'll talk oh, about that in more detail next week. That, that's so awesome. if anyone I wants to go to last weekend's events, just tune in <laughs> to next weekend's. Well, in Radio reality, I mean... You you are coming from our future, so I don't see right. why we couldn't just, do that, right? Just throwing just throwing in the space time continuum. Though. Yeah, there you yeah. go. It's not a problem whatsoever. And uh, Cal, what's coming up for you, or anything, or you're just laying low till the holidays are over? No, no, no. Different projects going on and different stuff at the university as usual. But this next Friday, there's a ghost hunt on. I'll be there. Paul Cecil be there. Norris going along. And that's at Fort Widley in Portsmouth. So that's also oh. plastered over Facebook if anyone wants to go along to that. There's a few places still available, but it and should be a good night. And yeah, that one's a, we'll keep that one a secret as to what it is, but we are writing a book. Oh, excellent. The, the, excellent. You know, if you write it with Cal, you, there's a chance you might even get to see it when it's done. Um. <laughs> I, we're having trouble at the moment because I wanted to be a colouring book and uh, uh, it's slightly more academic. I, 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 no, one quick thing, but December 8th, uh, we will be in uh, Bellingham with Jeff Landrieu and the Spooky South Coast doing Toys for Tots. So, time to go. Good night. God bless everyone. Good night. Book just come with free crayons. Bye-bye. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good lord. This is Togi